listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today we have an interview with a former lighthouse keeper that I think our listeners will really enjoy. It will fill the whole episode, so I want to get right into the introduction. The interview is with Frederick Mickelson, who was a Coast Guard lightkeeper at Connecticut Lighthouse in Rhode Island circa 1958 to 1961. Please help me out, Michelle. Sure, Jeremy. Providence, Rhode Island was one of the first cities in the United States to industrialize and it became a center for textile manufacturing as well as machine tool, jewelry, and silverware industries. Providence is located at the head of Narragansett Bay with the Providence River running into the bay through the center of the city. A number of lighthouses were established in the 19th century to guide shipping to Providence. A lighthouse was established in 1828 at Nayet Point on the east side of the entrance to the Providence River, but it wasn't sufficient to warn navigators of the dangerous sandbar extending out from Connecticut Point at the west side of the river's mouth. An unlighted granite tower was built in the center of the mouth of the river in 1866, and it was converted into a lighthouse two years later. Nayet Point Light was then discontinued. A new cast iron caisson lighthouse was built in 1883. The caisson is sunk 10 feet into the bottom of the bay and is constructed of cast iron plates. The caisson was filled with concrete with space left for a basement with water and fuel storage. A fourth order Fresnel lens exhibited a fixed white light 58 feet above mean high water and visible for 13 nautical miles with a red sector warning mariners of the dangerous shoal. A fog bell and striking machinery were installed on the watchroom gallery. Inside the lighthouse are six levels, including the watchroom and lantern. The galley, or kitchen, was on the first level and a living room was on the second. The next two levels provided more living space and storage. The keeper's bedroom was described in 1891 as pretty, with blue walls and an ash bedroom set. Nine arched windows in the lighthouse allowed light and air to circulate. Management of the nation's lighthouses went to the Coast Guard in 1939, but civilian lighthouse service keepers remained in charge at Connecticut until the late 1950s, when Coast Guard keepers took over. 18-year-old Fred Mickelson was assigned to Connecticut Light in 1958. The officer in charge when Mickelson arrived was first-class bosun mate Joe Backen. One of Mickelson's most memorable experiences in his three years at the lighthouse was a 1960 hurricane. The light was fully electrified via submarine cable from shore shortly after Fred Mickelson left. The kerosene-fueled incandescent oil vapor lamp had been in use for 47 years. Connecticut was one of the last lighthouses in the nation to be converted to electricity. The light was automated and the resident keepers were reassigned in 1963. On September 29, 2004, a ceremony was held to announce the transfer of the lighthouse to the city of Warwick 
under the guidelines of the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act. Fred Mickelson still lives in Rhode Island and he sometimes gives presentations on his lighthouse keeping days entitled Checked Main Light, Lighthouse Life in the 1950s. His family calls Connecticut Light Station Grandpa's Lighthouse. I recently had the opportunity to speak on the phone with Fred Mickelson. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am on the phone with Frederick Mickelson, a former lighthouse keeper. I always say the lighthouses are great, but it's the people, the keepers and families that really make these places special. Uh, so it's a, a pleasure to get to to get firsthand stories from people like you. So again, thanks so much for joining me today. So Fred, you uh, well, let me ask you first. Are you originally from Rhode Island? Yes, yes, I was born and born and raised in Rhode Island. And what part of Rhode Island are you from originally? Oh, I was born in the, the city of West Warwick, and then grew up in Providence and Cranston. And you were only 18 when you joined the Coast Guard and became a lighthouse keeper. What actually led you to joining the Coast Guard? Well, after graduating from high school in, in June, a job that was supposedly guaranteed fell through. And uh, young men in those days had a six-year obligation to the United States of America. And so I figured I might as well get that out of the way. And the Coast Guard seemed it's... Its humanitarian nature seemed to seem to be the way I wanted to go. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Did you do anything else in the Coast Guard? Let me ask you. Before you uh, got an assignment at a lighthouse, was there anything else you did in the Coast Guard? I was boot camp at Cape May, New Jersey, uh, engineman school at Groton, Connecticut, and then transferred to the First Coast Guard District in Boston. But I never expected to end up twenty miles from from home. <laughs> and you were bri actually briefly stationed at the lighthouse in Warwick, which again is yeah, close to uh, where you were from. Uh, you were stationed at the lighthouse in Warwick at the end of uh, Warwick Neck before you went to Connecticut. What do you remember about the Warwick light station? Well, I was sent there as relief light keeper. Harry Wilbur, a civilian light, one of the last civilian light keepers, was in bedridden with pneumonia. And although... Uh, his wife easily could have run the station. They had a, a lifetime of lighthouse keeping, the two of them. Started off uh, the day they were married, uh, Harry walked her down to the pier. She ducked under the weather hood on the station boat, and he ran her out to Thatcher's Island. So they had a history with the lighthouse service and, and uh, never had any children, and they kind of adopted me there for several weeks. <laughs> and and uh, we're, we're glad to have my company and and that's really where I learned to appreciate the history of lighthouse keeping. Uh, up until then, they were just buildings that kind of looked different, and you could see for along the shore. But uh, between reading the lighthouse letters in the Maine Coast Fishermen and I realizing the families and that there was a whole culture to uh, to lighthouse keeping. And that was my introduction, and it's kind of stuck with me for all my days. Right. And Harry Wilbur was one of the last civ civilian keepers in New England. When you went to Connecticut, the officer in charge was Joe Backen. 
I believe he was the son of a lighthouse keeper who had been at Warwick, among other places. Uh, from your description, Joe Bakken was a very interesting character. What can you tell us about him? Well, as you say, Joe was born on Execution Rock, so down off Bianca's um, way. And then the family was moved to Warwick Neck. So when I was at Warwick, I slept in the children's bedroom. I actually was sleeping in a bedroom that Joe Bakken had slept in years before. Uh, kind of a curious threads in a tapestry story. <laughs> uh, he... Uh, Joe had, was a, on a light ship, uh, LV-44, prior to 1939. And then uh, when the Coast Guard took over the, that part of the business, he, uh, he went to Maine and served on many lights up in Maine. So he, he had, a, he had a, a tremendous background. The reason that he was at Connecticut was uh, a tragedy in his life. He lost his wife in 1956 and because he had a sister in warwick he got a hardship transfer to warwick so that uh, the fa family could look uh, help him look after the kids he was 47 years old when i met him and he looked to be 74 at least uh, he was weathered uh, like any man of the sea is ever is and sharp blue eyes and short cropped hair and a grizzled chin he shaving shaving was something he didn't do on a regular basis <laughs> and um, he kind of lived on uh, instant coffee and camel cigarettes really <laughs> he was a character by all means he had definite ideas about things and living his life up in Maine his adult life up in Maine didn't help <laughs> broaden his horizons <laughs> Huh. Uh, yeah, I think you told me he was a good teacher. Well, when when I got to Connecticut, he was a little standoffish, and he warmed up uh, when I told him we both had uh, Scandinavian heritage. And um, when he realized that I uh, appreciated the things he knew, especially pertaining to the equipment that we that I had to master. Uh, as engineering officer on Connecticut Light, he became f f much more friendly. And his big disappointment was that I didn't know how to play cribbage and I wasn't interested in learning. <laughs> <laughs> did you end up playing cribbage with him? <laughs> no, I never did master the art of cribbage. Uh, we we had a fellow come, come aboard uh, within a few months who was an avid, cribbage player and joe was happy <laughs> huh. and i watched the game and and but just by watching it i was unable to you know 15 2 15 4 and <laughs> yeah I, I never i never grasped uh cribbage myself i just couldn't couldn't figure it out now connecticut lighthouse had no electricity can you tell us how the light operated at that time uh, the lamp was a 35-millimeter incandescent oil vapor lamp uh, from the early 1900s. It was one of the last ones here in New England. Mm -hmm. It was a, a, a tank of uh, clarified kerosene, a tank of compressed air, an air pump. The principle is that the kerosene under pressure enters a tube that 
over the flame that vaporizes the kerosene, sprays it into a Bunsen burner type arrangement, and the heat of that intense flame uh, heats a mantle uh, to incandescence. And I can't tell you the candle power, but it, it's a very bright light. They're compared a lot to the Coleman uh, camping lanterns. I think a lot of people are familiar with those. The yeah. principle is very much the same. And uh, you also had a fog bell there that was manually operated. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the, the, the bell whose weight I, I have yet to determine, uh, it, was a, it was a big bronze bell. and um, Probably about 1,000 pounds, I would say, maybe 1,000 pounds. They're usually around 1,000. Yeah, I, I believe it was 1,000 pounds. And different weights, the different sized bells gave different tones. Uh, it was operated by a Gamewell Bell Striker, number four, which is uh, an apparatus kind of Rube Goldberg, if people are old enough to understand <laughs> that term. Heavy cast iron weights that go down through a large tube that, that's in the center of the lighthouse. Or in the case of Many other lighthouses with bell. They had uh, either a tall tower that housed the weights, but ours was internal, of course. And the uh, the, the mechanism, when activated, operates a clock uh, and a trip, little tiny trip mechanism. And uh, every time the bell strikes, the movement of the mechanism rewinds the clock and sets the hammer for for another strike actually in the lighthouse within within the structure the sound of the mechanism was louder than the sound of the bell <laughs> how how often did that have to be wound uh, when it was operating well we would we would wind it every two hours could have run longer but of course the longer you run it the longer you're on the crank we're hauling those weights back up through the tower so i i could easily sleep learn to sleep somehow through the through the run but i would i would wake up and if the bell stopped for some reason sometimes the detent would hang up uh for just because it was finicky and old and um the sound of the silence would wake me up and I'd realize it wasn't striking and get up and make whatever adjustment needed to be made. So did it malfunction pretty often? No, no, it was, it was quite reliable. It was quite reliable, but, uh, you know, sometimes temperature changes, uh, drastic temperature changes would, uh, change the clearances on the clock the, the fine trip mechanism enough to uh, make it hang up. And pilots uh, running the vessels, it was heavy, much heavier freight traffic in and out of Providence in those days. And pilots would not pass the light. If the light was out or the bell wasn't sounding, uh, they'd sit out there and blow their horn and, and alert us to the, any malfunctions that we weren't aware of. So was there a certain rule about when you activated the fog bell, when a, if a certain uh, buoy or something like that disappeared from sight in the fog, or what was the rule for activating the, the fog bell? Well, we, we would, the fog usually comes in from the city or out from the land, so if in any given direction 
the visibility got down to around two miles, we would start the bell. And, of course, during the hurricane, we ran the bell all the time, straight through. Okay. Snowstorms also, would you activate it? Yeah, any anything that obscured the visibility, yeah. Let me ask you, during your time there, how many men were assigned to the station, and how many were typically there at one time? The station supposedly had a four-man crew. Uh, we never had four men. We often had three. Uh, sometimes had two, and on occasion, when you when you have two, one guy's there alone for while the other guy is off. So, talking about compliment, I I served with fifteen different people on that light in the in the just over three years that I was there, three different officers in charge and twelve uh, other seamen or one. Uh, enlisted men. Uh, a lot of people got sent there toward the end of their tour to kill the last two, three, four, five months that they had on their on their uh, enlistment. And uh, I, I'm not sure whether they did it <laughs> to convince them maybe to ship over or not. But it, I don't think it worked in every in very many cases. So you had one of the longer stints there, probably of, of almost anybody for, for quite a quite a while there. I mean, that, that three years is a pretty long time there. Yes, uh, the, the normal tour of duty was uh, 18 months, and, that, and it was considered semi-isolated duty. So after 18 months, you could put in for a transfer to any available unit within the 1st Coast Guard District uh, westerly to... Eastport, Maine. The district commander's uh, personnel officer uh, contacted me after I'd been there for two years uh, and say, say and offered me a chance to leave. But the rumors of uh, electrification were getting hotter, I guess. <laughs> and the cable actually was down at Bristol on the pier, so I knew sooner or later they would we'd get electricity. So I requested an extension. So I was my own, uh, my own executioner, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how did how did that happen that you were there for that one stretch for a month, or was it even a little over a, a month? How did how did that come about? And uh, well, the yeah, I was the, the after Joe Backen, the officer in charge was Sam E. Harris, Tex. He was from Texas. He, he had been in a year. We were the same age. Our birthdays were very close. But he'd been in a year earlier than I. He enlisted at 17. So his his tour, his four years were up, and he signed up for another four years, and that gave him a month off. Uh, so he went home to Texas and left me there for that month. And um, <laughs> and they did send, they sent the uh, group commander's yeoman, uh, storekeeper, he was a storekeeper, uh, but he was like the secretary of the group for the group office. They sent him out there out with me, and he only lasted one night. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he couldn't he couldn't stand the fact that we had an outside privy and uh, and one sink to wash our dishes and wash our faces and our feet and anything else that needed washing. So he he uh, <laughs> he only lasted one night. <laughs> and when when the relief keeper 
came back from, he had been on annual leave, too, to Florida. Yeah. When he came back, uh, Valinati, he, uh, I made him a cake, yeah. uh, in a, a ring cake in the shape of a toilet seat, <laughs> uh, welcome relief piped onto the frosting <laughs> on the top of it. I was hoping you'd tell that story. That's what I was trying to trying to get you to tell. I knew about that. Yeah, yeah that's 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 classic. So you, even though you had no electricity, uh, I understand you actually had a, a TV. How did how did that work? Well, when when Joe was there, I I imagine he had this in some of the units he was on up in Maine because he, I know he was on one that was an acetylene light that didn't have any electricity. Uh, he had a six-inch black-and-white TV and a six-fold, an old six-fold car battery, uh, wet cell battery, and, um, and an inverter. And when he realized I wasn't, I was compatible, I'll put it that way, he brought that out and we could watch oh, not quite two hours of TV before the battery got so low that it wouldn't run the inverter, so... A story about that TV. It was a little tube set, of course, and it would overheat. And toward the end, it was beginning to act up pretty badly. So uh, we figured out if we opened the window in the day room and stuck it out on the rain roof and propped it up with a couple of blocks of wood, uh, the wind blowing over the back end of it would keep it cool enough that we could get an extra few minutes out of it. <laughs> before the picture fractured. Uh, you probably only got, what, a couple of channels, maybe, on it? Uh, yeah, local. Uh, Providence? Yeah, Providence channels. Uh, I think at the time they were 10 and 12. Channel 10, I was going to say, yeah. So, of course, many lighthouse keepers uh, had hobbies. Uh, that was pretty common. Uh, I know you took up painting. Did uh, I've seen some of your work, which is uh, really beautiful. You're very talented. Did you paint before you went there, or is that something you took up while you were at Connecticut Lighthouse? Well, I'm, I I was always kind of interested in in art and drawing. In fact, I can show you some of my grammar school report cards where it says draws and daydreams. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> Those are good talents for a lighthouse keeper. <laughs> and uh, somebody before me had done a paint-by-number craft painting. And so there were leftover oil paints, and those are what I used to paint that, uh, or to, to attempt to paint that uh, image that you've seen of the uh, hazy sun shining on the wave tops, uh, kind of a classic. Seascape. <laughs> Every, yeah, everybody, see, everybody wants to paint the seascape. So. And... Um, I read a lot. I I, read, I did some watercolors. I read a lot because I didn't play cribbage. Yeah. And um, and eventually, well, I did get the plans for the sixty-four foot harbor tug out of Bristol. It was our lifeline, and um, and Chief Pickett let me borrow them, and I reproduced them by hand and started to build a model of, of the 64309 in half-inch scale. And I never finished it. And uh, the Coast Guard channel on Facebook uh, has a modelers group, and those those guys are f encouraging me to finish the damn thing. <laughs> Maybe I'll do it this winter. It's a good winter project. Yeah, I hope so. 
you were at the lighthouse for a hurricane in 1960. Uh, that had to be really scary. Uh, can you tell us what that was like? Well, we were. It was uh, there were three of us, and uh, we were kind of. I was on liberty, and I got a call from Bristol to return to the station. And Texan John Gotch picked me up, and we were kind of laughing as to. Is another thing that's going to go out to sea, and you know, kind of made light of it actually. But we did make, we did do preparations. We took one of the station boats and we hoisted it up on above the rain roof. So if we had, if the pier became overswept and we lost one, the other boat, uh, we'd still have a, a axe, a, a escape route or something to that effect. But we did kind of. Made made very light of it, talked about what we do if the light began to break up, because it does have a big crack that runs on the south side in the cast iron and through into the masonry from 1938. Or it might have been accelerated through in 1954, Hurricane. And we said, oh, well, we'll we've got some empty oil drums. We'll lash them together and make a raft and... Uh, and float to the Barrington shore where we'll be taken in by uh, a wealthy family with three lovely daughters. <laughs> you know, real, real teenage wit, you know. Wow. But it was more serious <laughs> than we imagined. The landing was underwater. Uh, the waves breaking against the south side of the tower would throw water around the walk around in such volume that the light uh, of the coming through the galley window, the first level window would be completely blocked and we would you'd be momentarily dumped into darkness. It was serious stuff. It busted the windows out of our privy. The water that the waves that broke above the rain roof would be driven up the side of the tower and came in the third floor windows even though we had uh, wooden storm windows on over the over the double hung not a lot, but enough that it had to be mopped up every hour or so. We did have electricity during that time. We had become we were electrified in the summer of 1960, so we didn't have to wind the fog bell. It rang with a uh, solenoid, electric-operated solenoid, and we didn't have to worry too much about the light. I had my generator running, diesel generator that we had muscled into the cellar that summer so we didn't have to worry about losing power. But the, the light, although it's supposedly 10 feet down in the muck, I think it's been some erosion because the force of the waves were enough to make the tower move. Mm. Uh, if you were up in the lantern, it would it would really bounce you against the wall. There had to be movement of uh, several inches. Wow. But other than that, we weathered the storm and and she's still standing, although she's fallen apart. Just uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, re- kind of related to to weather in a way. You told me about something that re- really scary that happened in the winter once. Uh, it involved uh, ice flows as you were heading back to the, the lighthouse by yourself. Can you tell us about that, uh, what happened that time? Yeah, the, the winters of 5960 and 6061 were really uh, bad winters. Uh, for ice in the uh, in the bay, all the whole all the Narragansett Bay. But the fresh water that comes from the 
Blackstone River. So all the watershed all the way from Worcester comes down through Providence and goes by Connecticut Light. And, of course, the water's more, less saline and freezes and makes ice. It was about 11 inches thick and um, 60, 61. It was in big chunks. There were flows, ice flows. And Barnhart came ashore to go home. to Do- He lived in Dorchester, first-class boatswain mate, officer in charge. And I jumped in the boat and decided and threaded the maze back out to the light. But the tide had changed, and the wind had swung into the northwest fairly fresh. And it was late in the afternoon. And as I stood on the thwart and steered the uh, outboard with a long stick so I could see the openings in the, between the flows, a big, big chunk came down from uh, Gaspy, Sabin's Point Way. And, uh, and I knew I couldn't, I couldn't escape it. So I pulled up the outboard so it wouldn't be crushed. And the, the flow hit the other uh, ice shelf. And um, actually lifted the boat high and dry onto the ice. Mm. And uh, I kept kind of hoping that it would turn or swivel or break up. Or, but it, the darkness was falling, and it didn't. I was I was stuck, and the temperature was dropping, and I began to wonder if anybody knew I was out there. And I actually thought about taking my laundry and kind of dousing it with gasoline and seeing if I could make a signal fire or something. And just about that time, I'm looking down the bay toward where the tug would come from Bristol, and I could see the running lights. And I knew I had, uh, I just had to wait for rescue. But I was awful glad to uh, hand my bow line to the to the tug and climb on, <laughs> climb aboard the tug for a ride back to the light. That was, that was kind of a little scary. Yeah, I'll bet. Wow. There was a uh, murder-suicide at Connecticut Lighthouse, uh, I think it was in the 1920s, uh, involved a keeper's wife and her son, and, and uh, some people have said that the lighthouse is haunted. Did you have any unusual experiences while you were there? None of us that were there, ever there when I was there had any knowledge of that. Uh, you're the one that alerted me to that. We did know that Mr. Powell, the last civilian keeper there, had had died of a heart attack at the landing by the day room. That would be the second floor landing. And um, there were people who thought uh, there was a chill in the air. They felt a chill in the air when they walked by that spot. And, you know, but I never put any stock in it. But if we'd known about the, huh. I can't think of their name, uh, uh, it was Smith. Was the uh, the keep, right, right. keeper was Ellsworth yep. Smith. It was his wife and Ellsworth Smith. Yeah. Yes. If I if I'd known of the Smith incident, uh, I might have been uh, <laughs> more sensitive to signs of spiritual activity. <laughs> I know people are all when I give my lighthouse talk, people are always gasp at that story, Jeremy. Really. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, you know, I always, one of the phrases I, I use when I lecture about life at lighthouses is it's not as romantic as you think, you know, and 
Uh, I don't need to tell you that, <laughs> but I mean, there's there's certainly a lot of lot of happy uh, stories, and and uh, there's a lot lot of positive things to be said about life at lighthouses. But uh, it wasn't for everybody, that's for sure. And no, uh, no, that's true. This particular woman uh, apparently uh, suffered from depression, and it just it yeah. just got to her. Yeah, it wasn't for Mrs. Smith. No, well, she had threatened she had threatened that she would do it if you know if he didn't get her off there and and she followed through on her thread yeah horrible thing to horrible thing to under, to think about though definitely uh if we could switch gears here and talk about much more recent history not again not not a happy story either i'm afraid but yeah. well uh i don't want to get too much into politics but in uh, recent history ownership of the lighthouse was transferred to the city of warwick that was about 15 years ago it seems like things have stalled out as far as restoration goes uh, since then. Again, I don't want to get too deeply into the politics of it, but but why do you personally feel? I did. This is a pretty obvious question. I, I but I I do want to ask you. Why do you feel it's important that Kinnemucket Lighthouse be restored and preserved uh, for the future? Well, that was a plan in the beginning, and and not following through on it. I there are several. There were several things that impeded the plan, funding mostly, but there have been opportunities to relinquish control to people who believed they had the funds or plans could do, do the work or the, the, mean, the ways and the means, yeah. and they've been ignored. That's, that's the political end of it that I don't understand. I've totally given up on ever seeing anything happen to it unless somebody else gets involved. The city is in no position to do it. They took on a project of building a park that's land-based uh, at uh, Rocky Point, halfway between Connecticut and Warwick Neck, and that, of course, is much more usable to people in the state of Rhode Island and to people in the in the city and and I can see why it took priority and and took stole interest away from the lighthouse but they still use the lighthouse on their logo on all their public equipment and the street signs in Warwick all in Connecticut village all have pictures of the lighthouse on them so they still identify with the lighthouse but that's the extent of it I guess yeah well, you know, uh, don't hold your breath, but at the same time, I wouldn't give up. I mean, you never know what some something could uh, a spark could ignite. You know, something can can happen uh, out of the hope. blue. Yeah, hope hope springs eternal. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> I guess. yeah. But you know, we're not going to solve it right now. But something could happen. I've I've been fortunate in that I got involved with the Palmum Rocks, the Friends of Palmum Rocks, and they were able to do an unbelievable job up there of of bringing it back. So I know what it looked like, and they brought it back exactly the way it was. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. In my uh, in my role as president of the American Lighthouse Foundation, I just gave a special award to the Friends of Palmum Rocks Lighthouse uh, in yeah. in, uh, in September. And uh, it's truly an amazing restoration. And you know, uh, where, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, it, you know, it's not easy. It's it's difficult. It's very difficult, especially with an offshore lighthouse where you can't have tours. 
It takes creativity. It takes tremendous, tremendous hard work. But somebody needs to do that work. <laughs> uh, and so far, it hasn't it hasn't happened with Connecticut. But uh, I'm, we're not we're not giving up. So we'll see. Now you made a model of the lighthouse a few years ago, which you bring with you when you do uh, your your lecture about your your time at the lighthouse. Uh, how did how did that happen? How do you happen to make a model of the lighthouse? Well, uh, when Harbor Lights was in business, you know, you keep looking to see if maybe uh, maybe they'll they'll issue a copy of your light. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I kind of thought that would never happen with Connecticut, so so I decided. There was an outfit in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, that made uh, items for model railroaders uh, kits, structure kits, and one of them was old Saybrook light. So I bought old Saybrook light kit and then modified it uh, so that it was one story higher and the taller caisson and so forth and so on. And that made a replica of Connecticut light. And I had a great, that was a winter project. That was one. <laughs> and uh, and now it's going to be displayed at Palmham Rocks in the uh, Connecticut corner of the museum room. So oh. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Well, that's fantastic. Congratulations. That's great. One more question for you for bonus points. <laughs> when you look back in your days as a lighthouse keeper, would you do it over again if you could? Oh, definitely, definitely. It was it was a, a a lesson in so lessons in so many things about myself, uh, the difference between loneliness and solitude, a chance to uh, use my imagination and to learn that I could do just about anything that I wanted to if I did a little research. And I may not have done it very well, but I could do it to my own satisfaction. It was really the time that I went from boy to man, and uh, and I appreciate that opportunity. Beautifully said, Fred. Uh, it's uh, truly a pleasure talking to you. I could talk to you all day. It's a pleasure listening <laughs> to you. You're a, you're a poet, a philosopher, an artist, and uh, it really is a, a pleasure. So, Frederick Mickelson, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Again, it's a, it's a pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you again, at, I'm sure, at events in the future. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity. Yes. Have a good day, Jeremy. <laughs> That's all for this episode of Lighthearted. Thanks to all the staff, volunteers, and members of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Be sure to check out uslhs.org to learn more about the organization and all it has to offer. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it by making a donation or becoming a member of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. If you work or volunteer at a lighthouse, we'd like to hear from you please email us at jeremy at uslhs.org and let us know what you love about your lighthouse and what inspires you about your work. We'd like to include your comments on this podcast. Also, if you listen to Lighthearted through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. We want to thank Jay Holcomb8, who recently posted this review. I quote, my family and I thoroughly enjoy listening to Lighthearted. It's an excellent and informative podcast that we always look forward to listening to. 
Jeremy and his co-hosts do a great job with researching, bringing guests on that are passionate about their lighthouse-related work, and they get us even more excited about traveling to new lighthouses, end quote. Thanks again to Jay Holcomb 8 for that nice review. And again, many thanks to Fred Mickelson for the interview in today's episode. Fred is a true gentleman and has been great about sharing his experience of being a lighthouse keeper. I feel very lucky to know him. As always, thanks for listening and... Keep a good light! Keep a good light!